0: Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey.
1: Hello! I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, director, and shoe size six and a half. Oh, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, and I have bad handwriting.
2: I have bad handwriting.
1: I know, both of us do. It's very bad. Mine's worse, I'd argue. Uh, yours is more chicken scratchy, but mine is very loopy, and so it is hard to read. Mm, I can't
2: read my own handwriting.
1: Really? Yeah, and sometimes that's for the best. Like, you look at it back, and you're like, who wrote this? Or you're like, no, I'm,
2: I'm like, I know I wrote it, but I don't know what I wrote. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, and it sucks, because now I'm taking notes in class, and so I have to, like, really try so that I can read it later. Can you type the notes? what is this 2020 (laughs) oh so no typing of the notes i know i prefer to to handwrite my notes i just think if i was typing notes on my computer i'd be more distracted in class
1: oh because you'd be like on twitter
2: yeah or just like my (laughs) computer is like like my time versus like i have my notebook and i'm in the front row and i'm paying attention
1: you sit in the front row you nerd yeah of course i sit in the front row you really you purposefully sit in the front row In one class,
2: yeah. The other class is like a U-shape, and I sit right by the door for an easy exit.
1: (laughs) Okay, so what is the benefit of sitting in the front row? Just, uh, I like it. I'm closest to the teacher. (laughs) Uh, Okay, and that's why. So you don't get distracted? Yeah. But don't you worry that they're, like, staring at you? No.
3: I
2: actually, um, I think that she really likes a lot of encouragement when she's talking, and so I make sure that I'm nodding a bunch so that she knows that, like, she's being heard. Why are you emotionally supporting the teacher? Because we should all emotionally support each other. Wow. This is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty.
1: I would never sit in the front. Never in my life.
2: Well, I did it at first, and I was like, hey, why not?
1: And I enjoy it. That's... Does anyone sit next to you? Here's what I'm picturing. I'm picturing the teacher, you... A full row empty and everyone else, like, four rows back.
2: No, there's always at least three other, four other, five other people in the front row with me.
1: Really? Yeah. I guess because, you know, they must care as they are paying to attend school. Exactly. It's, like, so different. It's graduate school
2: because you want to be there.
1: Yes. And And you also, like, don't care about being cool.
2: (laughs) Oh, nobody does? I mean, I don't. That'd be so sad if you did.
1: You came back, and you're wearing, like, a leather jacket like Fonzie, and you're like, I'm just trying to be the coolest person in graduate school.
2: Wow, I feel like you have a really weird definition of cool.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yes, absolutely I do. My definition of cool is, like, very 1950s. Like, you roll up on a motorcycle, and you're just, like, smoking a cigarette in class, combing your slick back hair.
2: I'm shocked you don't smoke cigarettes. Uh, Not anymore. Yeah, but, like, it feels like it's up your alley in a certain way of, like— nervousness and like coolness and like posery. <laughs> I it's not I, it's not good for you. I don't yeah. want I don't want to get sick. Well, speaking of getting sick, we have an incredible episode this week <laughs> with Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, who is the host of America Dissected and an epidemiologist and I'm a fangirl.
1: Yes, oh, uh, you wanted to talk to him about wellness. Oh, well, perfect. What is What an amazing dovetail I've done for all of us.
2: And later we'll be discussing children and climate change.
1: Is it selfish to procreate in the current environment?
2: We'll hold off on that, but yes. Uh, but first, hit it! International question! International question! International question! Anonymous, but she swears she's international.
1: Wow, so any country in the world, but picture not- it. America, not the United States. Not the United of States of America. She could be from Canada. Could be from Vietnam. Um, Vietnam. Yeah, could be from anywhere. How many countries do you think you could list? Not enough. Same here. Not enough for a person who went to college.
2: <laughs> okay, anonymous's question is: How do I fight internalized homophobia? Oof. Let me elaborate. My brother recently came out to me as bi. He is also experimenting with gender, drag, makeup, etc. My brother and I were both raised in a household that is not LGBTQ friendly, so I have a lot of internalized homophobia growing up towards myself. Spoiler, I'm queer too. Mm -hmm. Over the last few years, I've learned to accept myself for who I am and others for who they are. But when my brother came out, I was shocked, and the first thought that came to my mind was, no, you're not. Obviously, I did not say this out loud, but I don't understand where these thoughts came from. I thought I had fought off all the internalized homophobia when I started accepting myself and became proud to be part of the
1: LGBTQ community. How do I go about this and be supportive of my brother? Oh, okay. Let me break it down. So, here, there's this thing uh, that I experienced. Called uh, I, I was calling it sort of like a, a mirror, where I think sometimes this ha- and this happens to all people, where when you see someone who is similar to you, you are put off by it. You don't like it. Hmm. Um, if you're a loud person and you see someone else who's loud, you're you are maybe off put by it. And when I was in high school, and I was closeted, and I knew that I was queer, but I didn't, uh, I didn't want anyone to know, and I didn't want to talk about it, and I had a lot of internalized hatred about it, I had a teacher at my school who, in retrospect, very obviously a lesbian. And I did not like her I was scared of her I was like didn't want to be super associated with her Um, I and she was a great teacher but I was very nervous to be around her similarly there was another teacher who I think was a closeted gay man and I was also very uncomfortable around him and I think that part of that is that you see something in them that is in you and you are nervous about it being exposed or judged Uh, or that people might see you for who you are because because of the association with this other person. So it made me react with anger and hatred towards these two teachers because I was scared of my own queerness. So I think like when you are queer and you are dealing with your own internalized homophobia and you really overcome it and you really start to accept yourself and then someone else close to you also comes out as queer, it it can bring all of those feelings back up because you see it as a mirror of yourself, and you're like, especially if your brother is playing with like gender and drag and makeup, and is maybe more visibly and obviously queer than you, you can sort of be like, oh, now this is gonna reflect on me. People are gonna think I'm a certain type of queer person. People are gonna uh, associate us with each other, and I'm not gonna have the control that I need to have over how I'm viewed. Um, And I'm also going to be clocked as obviously queer because of my association with this other person. I also think sometimes if you have internalized uh, homophobia, you don't want to always come across... As queer, you don't want to always be thinking about your queerness because you have the opportunity to be like, well, I'm bi, but I'm I'm not like, you know, actually super gay or I'm bi, which is stuff that I used to think myself like I'm bi, but I'm not like, you know, this kind of gay, this out and loud and like drag and makeup and uh, or like, you know, boots and flannel sort of like stereotypical gay. And then uh, when someone else is that and they're bi you have double the reason to be like, eh, you're doing this for attention, and I'm a type of gay that doesn't need to do this for attention. So I'm better than you. So then it creates this like hierarchy of queerness, which is bullshit. And also that because it's bi ness specifically, you can go, No, you're not. Like, you're not bi. Like you you come it comes into your own internalized biphobia where you're like, is bisexuality even real or valid? Like, there's just a lot of things that are societally programmed that can then pop back up in yourself when, especially in this situation, and especially if it's stuff that you yourself feel insecure about and you see someone else projecting.
2: I think that it's really brave to admit that you're feeling this way and to like recognize that in yourself and to have the self-awareness that even though you know that it's the wrong reaction, that that is the reaction you're having. And I think so much of our reactions are just conditioned Mm-hmm. So especially if you grew up in this house that's not LGBTQ friendly, like, how could you expect yourself not to have that reaction? Mm-hmm. You know, like, cut yourself some slack. Um, I One of my favorite sayings is that, like, the first thing you think is what you've been conditioned to think, and then the second thing you think is who you really are. Mm. So just the fact that, like, your response to your potential internalized homophobia is like, yuck, I don't want this. Mm-hmm. That's who you really are, you know? And so – Don't be so hard on yourself and the fact that like outwardly you're being supportive of your brother and I'm sure no one else even knows this is going through your head like just give yourself some kindness and know that like you've been conditioned to feel this way and it's not who you really are how you really feel.
1: There's also a thing with siblings about like you're copying me or you're – or like I've already done this enough to our parents and now Mm -hmm. if you view it that way, oh, now you're doing this to your your parents like one of you has to – take the hit of being normal, sort of. Like, my sister and I, I'll be like, I don't want to have kids. And my sister will be like, I don't want to have kids. And I'll be like, one of us has to. <laughs> um, And I think, like, you just uh, maybe are dealing with a little bit of that, where you're like, well, I came out. Um Now, I'm sorry that I made this easier for you, but now, like, both of us are fucking up mom and dad shit in our not LGBT-friendly home. But you have to realize that he's your ally now. Like, you guys are each other's best um like best hopes for you know for uh acceptance together
2: i think it's interesting that your final question is how do i go about this and be supportive of my brother i think you know how to be supportive of your brother you know like you vocalize your support you act supportive you um say things to your parents that are you know on his side so even if you are battling potentially these thoughts those are just thoughts Mm -hmm. And what is really important
1: is your actions and Mm -hmm. how you treat him. And that you have complete control over. There's also the difference that between sexuality and gender. So, for instance, if you're uh, both queer, but you are not someone who plays with gender at all, uh, you could be reacting to this also internalized sort of gender normativity where you're mm-hmm. like i understand that you're queer but do you need to be doing makeup do you need to be doing drag like you know maybe your brothers on some sort of of gender journey too um and that is something like there's the people that are like oh i understand queerness but like any sort of like gender nonconforming or transness or non nonbinaryness like uh you know what i mean and um so i think you should examine that too as to why specifically You you mentioned in your in your letter uh, the part about him experimenting with gender, like why that specifically bumps for you, because that's different. Like you're like, well, we're both we both have the same sexuality. Why would I be, um, you know, having these thoughts? But like, are you both expressing it the same way? Is there a gender thing on this, you know, on this side for him that's not happening for you? And are you making room for that? That's a very good point. Thank you. I am a professional gay. If you want
2: to submit your international question, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Stick around after the break. We've got a very juicy interview with Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. I'm so excited. back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment
1: known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week, we have uh, someone that Allison is super excited about. So why don't you give the introduction? Yes. So a few
2: months ago, I started listening to a podcast called America Dissected, which completely changed my life about everything. (laughs) Um, And I continuously recommend it and send it to everybody. Um, So please welcome Dr. Abdul El-Sayed.
3: Woo! Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on the show.
2: So can you explain kind of your um, unusual background?
3: Yeah. Um, so, you know, it means a lot of things. So I'm, a, I'm a physician um, by training and also uh, a, a public health professional. Um, I'm an epidemiologist. That means I uh, study the, the distribution and determinants of disease and populations. Um, a lot of folks get that confused with epidermis, which is the top layer of your skin. <laughs> um, and uh, and I was the health uh, commissioner for the city of Detroit for a while, um, and uh, got the opportunity to rebuild the health department in that city after it had been shut down, and then ran for governor. And so I sit somewhere uh, between um, politics and public health, and I think um, when you sit in that space for long enough, uh, you start to appreciate that so many of the things that that determine our health and our well-being that we think of as being so individual. Um, and under our skin uh, are actually determined by the society in which we live, um, who gets to have resources, whether that be money or a house or healthy food uh, or healthcare, care, um, and, uh, and who doesn't, and what the implications can be for all kinds of health outcomes. And America Dissected was about exploring that.
1: So, yeah, so what kind of stuff do you cover on America Dissected?
3: Yeah, we talk about a number of, of different sort of health grabbing headlines um, and try and go a little bit deeper to dissect them. Uh, So everything from uh, why people don't vaccinate their kids to uh, to why pharmaceuticals are so expensive uh, to how the health system works or or more doesn't work um, and Medicare for all and and how that might work uh, to understanding superbugs and the rise of antibiotic resistant bacteria um, to the topic we'll talk about today, which which is. Um, uh, the, the, you know, ridiculous claims made um, by certain people trying to sell us stuff that they tell us is good for us, um, sometimes exploiting uh, our, um, our, our lack of answers uh, from more traditional approaches to healthcare care uh, and our insecurity about, about the fact that, you know, we all want to be a little bit healthier um, and the, the, the wellness industrial complex that, that springs out of that.
1: Oh, the wellness industrial complex. <laughs> I love
2: that. Well, I'm sure that you know probably more than anyone how often people feel like the medical professions fail them, that like they go to the doctor and they're either they have a really hard time getting diagnosed or um, their concerns aren't taken seriously or like they're priced out of certain treatments. And so I think we understand why people turn to these alternatives, but how can someone recognize when maybe they're getting caught up in something that's not true?
3: Yeah. Look, trying to get healthcare um, is a really frustrating experience in this country. Um, you know, you're constantly turned away, told you're you know, going to an out-of-network out provider. Um, it's opaque sometimes what doctors can even provide or what doctor you should be seeing. Um, and on top of all of that, um, oftentimes, in particular for, uh, for people of color and, and for women, um, the, the challenges that we may bring to our physicians haven't adequately been researched or engaged with um, when I was in medical school for example uh, every dosing that we learned um, for every medication we talked about uh, was for a seventy kilogram man now oh. you know if you're not that seventy kilogram man by definition um, the the industry is not paying attention to you and I think that's changed a little bit but still um, we're, we've got a long way to go and um, and when it comes to uh, to to issues of of um, female reproductive health, uh, we just have not done a great job providing answers to questions. Even, you know, when you think about heart disease, which is the number one killer of people in the world, um, we were only now coming to appreciate the consequences of stereotyping, uh, heart disease around the way that it presents in men. Um, which means that oftentimes women don't get diagnosed and, uh, and, and treated, um, as quickly. And, and that can be deadly. So what is it that you know that's happened is that you you have this whole industry that's sort of uh, cropped up trying uh, to fill that void between where healthcare uh, is and where it should be, and um, there are a couple of I think red flags to pay attention to. Um, number one, anybody who makes superlative claims without any claim without any qualifier like this will definitely solve your problem. Mm. You got to be worried about that, right? Um, it's, uh, you know, it's the, it's the classic used car salesman trick. It's like, this is definitely the car for you. And you're like, but how do you know that? You don't even know who I am, right? right? Like, <laughs> I, um, and, and so watch out for superlative claims. Two, um, when people who don't have any healthcare expertise at all start telling you about what's good for your health, uh, be, be afraid, be very afraid. Um, and then number three, uh, when people have made a living um, sort of on the outer edges of medical claims, if either they've exploited their training somewhat like uh, Mehmet Oz, or um, exploited their uh, celebrity status to sell you something that you're going to put in your body, um, or on your body, um, really, really kick the tires on that, right? Um, so I would I would generally approach any of these um, health claims that are given to you by somebody other than a trained healthcare provider, um, like you would approach buying a used car, right? You know, I'd, I'd ask how are you trying to get one up on me? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, what are you trying to sell me? Uh, and, and what should I know about what I'm walking into here?
2: There is like a lot of evidence, though, that the placebo effect is like highly effective. I right? was about to ask about so, that. So like people think, oh, if someone tells you this is going to fix you, then sometimes it does because you're, tr- you're tricking your mind. Um, but so what are like some wellness um, products uh, or sort of like treatments that you think are actually dangerous?
3: Yeah, um, you're right. The, the, the placebo is an in- incredibly valuable drug. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, oftentimes when they, when they, when they test, uh, when they test medications in randomized trials, they usually use a sugar pill, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I promise you, you can get a sugar pill for far cheaper, uh, than most of the stuff that they sell on Goop. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, um, placebos are powerful and our mind thinking something is good for us. Uh, usually means that it's going to be good for us, um, because the mind is an extremely powerful thing. Um, but uh, you know, p- people make claims a lot uh, in the space around you know anything having to do with skin and skin quality. Yeah uh, that's huge. Or um, sexual health, you hear those claims made all the time, um, or those you know aches and pains that never seem to go away. Like those are the things that are that the medical profession hasn't done a great job of researching or at least being honest about, uh, our failure to understand some of these things. And that's the place where, you know, this, this wellness industrial complex tends to crop up and, um, and, and, and rear its head. Uh, and you know, one example of that, um, was uh, a couple of years ago, uh, the Goop website started to sell, um, these products they called Yoni eggs, which were literally jade eggs that, uh, claims were made about, you know, how they would improve the health of the pelvic floor or, uh, start to help regulate hormones, and there were literally jade eggs that were to be inserted in the vagina. Um, there is no reason anybody should ever insert a rock in their vagina, um, and uh, and uh, no justification for telling people that that would be healthy to, for them. Um, and yet, you know, the group website was doing that. Um, oftentimes, you know, you, you see this whole supplement industry. Uh, um, you know, nootropics are one that I talk about in the in the podcast. Um, which are supposed to be these uh, supplements that, that that will improve your mental acuity and your intelligence. Um, and I I went to medical school and did a PhD in public health. I have never heard of the word nootropic until I saw it uh, being sold to me on Goop's website. And it turns out that there's this whole industry of uh, nootropic supplements. And, and what people don't appreciate, and unfortunately in our country, um, we don't regulate the supplement industry very well. And so you know, people can put all kinds of things in those supplements and not have to necessarily tell you what's in them uh, and tell you on top of that, that it's healthy for you. Um, and that's a pretty dangerous thing. And so uh, we, we've got to be really worried because it's not just the amount of money that can be flushed down the toilet, but also um, if you're putting stuff on your body or in your body uh, that hasn't been tested, it can actually be dangerous. Um, a lot of these supplements have been found to have, you know, lead in them or uh, other medications that, that can interact with medications that people are on because a doctor told them to take them um, that can have really devastating consequences for your health, and so you've got to approach carefully. Uh, you've got to vet all the supplements that you uh, may or may not take, and, and it's always better to err on the side of caution.
1: What about like juice cleanses or those like tummy teas that are so popular?
3: On, on those on those fronts, right? Um, m- m- those are those are usually going to be uh, tested and regulated by um, the the public health infrastructure that regulates these things. And if you want to take some juices and you just want to drink juice for a couple of days, um, that's fine. Uh, I, I don't necessarily recommend it, and oftentimes the the uh, the claims that are made are overblown. But you know, if you want to drink some tea or uh, drink some juice, that's fine. Uh, but I I would be also just just um, really careful about any of the supplement packets that uh, that are put in there. Um, and you know, for a lot of folks, they say those things make me feel better and. You know if eating a certain particular kind of food or drinking a particular beverage makes you feel better, then um, more power to you. But uh, usually, where the where 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 we get worried about these issues uh, is when it comes to the supplement industry um, and on sometimes some of the some of the topical uh, creams and products that people use can be dangerous.
0: It was just
1: laxatives, just a quick <laughs> quick little laxative you know? tea. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend uh, making making regular use of laxatives. Um, but uh, but you know some of these teas that uh, that 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 people feel settled their stomach. You know maybe maybe they do and uh, and that's great. And like like we talked about earlier, if you think something's going to help you, it usually helps you, right? right. Um, and the the thing about those teas is that they're uh, regulated and usually sold for a reasonable price, so people aren't paying an arm and a leg to get something that can make them sick.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, what do you think the FDA's role in is, is in all of this? Like, do you think that they're just not regulating enough or that they're kind of backed up and these products come out too quickly before they can even really be tested by the FDA?
3: Yeah, there are a couple of problems here. Um, number one, you know, as we in this country have assented to a logic that says that the government is part of the problem rather than part of the solution, mm-hmm. what we've seen is across the the, the federal regulatory agencies, there's, the, there's this paring down of capacity. And when the FDA or, or even um, the FAA, which regulates airplanes, right, loses the capacity to be a good regulator, you end up having bad things happen, right? You think about the, 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 the Boeing 737 MAX situation. That was a situation where Boeing was self-regulating and in, in giving its reports out uh, to the FAA. The same thing has happened uh, with the FDA, uh, where we've stripped out a lot of the infrastructure of that agency. And so it doesn't have the ability to actually regulate the way it ought to. Um, and on top of that, it doesn't regulate the, the supplement industry at all. And I think that's a glaring problem. I think anything that, that is being sold uh, with potential medicinal properties, or at least medicinal claims, um, should be regulated. And we should be able to go in and take a look at what's inside and make sure that it's not something that's harmful, that could actually hurt people, um, and that the claims that are being made are justified.
2: So it's really, in a way, it's like a budget issue, <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, it's it's a budget and it's a choice issue, right? I mean, you know, budgets are just a reflection of our values. And when we uh, say that a budget is too small, what we're saying is de facto, we don't we don't value the thing as much as we say we do. Right. right? And, um, and that really is the problem is that um, these are really important, uh, important regulatory capacities that the government has, it, it protects us from people who are um, being predatory and exploiting our insecurities and our lack of knowledge. Um, and so Uh, and so we need to decide that we're going to invest in, um, in the government's ability to protect us from people who are trying to exploit us. And that's what grows a budget, right? That's what, uh, what, what government is supposed to do. And we need to decide that we're going to fund government to do it.
1: I'm going to, uh, be a dummy here for a second, uh, because I am, uh, both Jewish and a queer woman in Los Angeles. Um, and so there's a lot of, uh, emphasis on like, in ethnic cultures, like the sort of, uh, this is what, you know, chicken soup is going to cure everything or, um, or in terms of like Eastern medicine, like these bombs or, um, acupuncture or crystals or stuff like that, that is sort of like this push away from Western medicine. Is it that you... You need to merge the two? Is it that like it's culturally prioritizing like Western medicine or traditional medicine over stuff that is you know just different or proven to to work in a like a different t- uh, side of the world?
3: Mm-hmm. I really uh, appreciate that question. It was a really smart question actually and um and thank you for asking it. you know I come from um my my, my parents immigrated from Egypt um mm-hmm. and so I spent a lot of my childhood in egypt and um you know there definitely is a different culture about about health and healthcare in, in Egypt and as there is in many parts of the world. Um, the idea of, of quote unquote Western medicine, um, I think we need to unpack a little bit. And when we say Western, what we really mean is evidence-based and evidence-based medicine just says that anything and everything can be considered uh, medicinally viable if we can show in, um, in a scientific way that it, is, um, that it actually has the benefits that we are claiming that it has. right? And so, you know, in the quote unquote Western medicine tradition, um, there's a lot of acceptance of, of Eastern modalities of healing because we've been able to run, uh, randomized trials and show that they work. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? And so it's not about where the modality comes from. It's about whether or not we can use science to demonstrate that that modality actually has the benefits, um, that it's claimed to have. And so, you know, it's not just, you know, the, the, the pill for, um, uh, approach to to medicine that that tends to be characterized as western medicine it's that yeah, it may be that this pill helps with X problem, but it may also be that um, you know a massage helps with that problem or uh, or a um, another treatment uh, helps with that problem insofar as we can prove that it helps it 's admitted as you know part of part of the corpus of medicine, and so um, I think there's a lot of real benefit to different traditions approaches um, to, to healthcare and to improving our health. But to me, I just say that the standard is show me that it can work, um, across a population in a randomized trial. And I think it's great and people should use it at the same time, you know, like, you know, a cup of chicken soup, right? There, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good reason why, you know, if, if your, if your stomach hurts, go, go drink a cup of chicken soup. It won't hurt you. Okay. Right. Um, and, uh, and it, and it may just help you. Uh, the problem is when, People dress up potentially exploitative uh, and untested chemicals as um, as a science-based solution. So take that example I showed you. I told you about the nootropics, right? They're using the cloak of science to try and dress up something that's not scientifically tested as a scientifically based uh, solution. Or, right, folks who uh, who continue to argue that something truly is a solution for a problem when a number of tests have shown that it's not. you know. So healing crystals, for example, um, there's no evidence and uh, people have asked this question. There's no evidence to suggest that holding a certain kind of rock is going to make you feel a certain kind of way. If you really you. want to buy the-
1: How dare I'm sorry. you? I'm
3: sorry. I apologize. The if lesbian really community the rock-
1: of Los Angeles is rioting right now.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I will say this. If you want to buy the crystal, it's not going to hurt you. The, the crystal, right? Like holding a crystal um, and- Uh, And feeling like it makes you feel better, that's fine, like if if you really want to do it. But um, as long as nobody's making the claim that there is strong scientific evidence that that crystal uh, truly does solve this set of problems. um, And you know, you're buying the crystal with with good knowledge that this is what someone thinks could help you. And that someone has no basis in in rigorous science to say that, but that you feel better when you use that crystal, by all means, uh, holding a crystal is not going to hurt you.
2: I'd love to get your thoughts on, um, medical marijuana, because that is something that has been tested to help in a lot of different situations. And so why, why do you think, do you think that the government is doing a huge disservice by not making it, um, legal
3: federally? Well, personally, I I just believe we ought to be, you know, we need to legalize marijuana. Um, I think we just need to move, move forward on that. Like even beyond, um, the medicinal value in certain circumstances, right? Um, Mm -hmm there's the realization that there's no reason why this particular substance uh, should be illegal when uh, something like alcohol is legal, right? Right. Um, You know, alcohol has substantially more dangers associated with it than marijuana does. Um, So there's just a double standard in the way we use it. And then there's the civil rights point, which is to say that um, arrests for marijuana possession among black and brown Americans are substantially higher, despite no higher likelihood of use. And so we've created a place where policing uh, a reason why policing, systematic policing, over-policing of minority communities has led to this, um, or contributed to this problem of, of mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. And so, um, we need to legalize for all of those reasons. I'll tell you that, you know, in med school, I remember, um, a case where, uh, a, a child with <clears throat> severe epilepsy, a disorder where you have multiple seizures, you know, all of the medications that they tried to give this kid failed. Um, and then they put the kid on marijuana and the kid was seizure free. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, there's a, a lot of good benefit. And I also, I, I think we haven't fully researched marijuana because it's been schedule one for a long time. Um, and so I think there's a lot more research to be done looking at the the medical value of cannabis um, that needs to be done. And I do think that, you know, right now, uh, the, the, the way that we have kept it illegal, um, I think has held back science. And so uh, I think we've got to move forward on on this and, and legalize for a lot of reasons.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of stuff that I I looked into uh, way back about how uh, people are buying up the patents for marijuana and like, you know, in terms of the pharmaceutical industry, like buying up these these uh, medicines for instance like you know martin screlly buying the aids medication and then jacking Mm -hmm. up the price um is it just that like this is becoming this thing where you can like individual corporate interests and individual people can just purchase these things
3: well you're touching on a a much broader um failure of our for-profit pharmaceutical system and our for-profit health system to uh allow us to bring the right medications to market for folks who need them, um, right? And you're right. Like, I mean, if you you sort of buy up the formulation, uh, and you can sort of sit on it and wait until uh, there's enough evidence, and then all of a sudden you jack up the price, um, just like has been done with so many medications in America, um, and that's that's a shame. I will say, you know, one of the one of the threats that the pharmaceutical industry sees um, is that there may be uh, a really valuable use of cannabis um, when it comes to its, its, um, its pain reducing properties. Um, and that would directly compete with opioids. And, um, there's a lot of money that they make on opioids and, and we know the consequences that it's had with the opioid epidemic. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's plausible that, uh, there may be some use of cannabis, um, that can help compete with that and reduce that, uh, that, uh, or, or, or help us, um, uh, create a, a safer, better alternative to, um, to opioids. Uh, But again, the industry makes money off of this. That's why they kicked off the entire epidemic in the first place. Um, And so, you know, you see the perversity in the way that they approach this, uh, because for them, it's all about the bottom line. And uh, that's just not a service to Americans or, frankly, the rest of the world.
2: That's why in your episode about Medicare for All, you were basically arguing that we need to have that in order for the government to actually negotiate with these pharmaceutical companies, right? That's the only way for them to have the power to actually get the prices down.
3: Exactly, you know, we've allowed our politicians to be bought and paid for by, um, by corporations. And the pharmaceutical lobby is the single biggest lobby in the entire country. They spent $4.4 billion over 20 years to lobby our government. And one of the things that that allowed them to do was to prohibit Medicare, which is right now the, um, the health insurer, the government health insurer for all people over the age of 65, to prohibit Medicare from being able to uh, negotiate drug prices which is crazy. So they just have to take the the, the price that um, the pharmaceutical offers. Uh, and under Medicare for all, uh, we'd be extending Medicare, so it will cover everybody, Medicare for all. Um, and uh, we would need to allow it to negotiate with those pharmaceuticals to bring those costs down um, so that people can afford their medications. Because you know I, I've met too many people, um, in particular seniors who are on fixed income, who just can't afford their meds. And so they're rationing their medications. They're taking half as much as they need to. And of course, medications don't work like that, right? You need to get a certain amount uh, in your body for it to be effective. And so it's like they're taking no medication at all because some pharmaceutical corporation and their CEO are making gobs and gobs of money and see their greed as being more important than the health of the people that they're intended to serve.
1: Well, and that leaves the door open for people to sell like charlatan, uh, medical alternatives.
3: That's exactly right. That's exactly right, is that, you know, we've allowed our health system to be captured by these corporations. Exactly. So to open the door for, uh, quote unquote, alternatives that we know are no alternative at all. um, But that costs a lot of money still. So people are getting uh, both um, robbed of their ability to get the health care that they need because of corporations, and then getting exploited by other corporations because of it.
1: Or they think that it's not like, oh, the medication they're giving me is you know, poison versus like, this is this is all natural. This is, you know, uh, comes from a plant or whatever.
3: That's right. And I'll, I'll tell you the, the, the saddest thing um, is that, you know, we're talking about people in pain, right? Whether it's, uh, it's you know, it's body pain or it's the pain of insecurity about a problem that you, um, you want to go away. And, you know, the exploitation that is implicit in this um, is just, it's devastating, right? So to exploit somebody in pain for a dollar I just I just think it's, it's like one of the worst things that you can do in the world. And unfortunately, we've set up our entire healthcare system so that this happens all the time. Um, and it's the way the system works. It's we can do so much better in this country.
2: If you feel like you are being failed by the healthcare system, you know, so someone who would be vulnerable to potentially buying into this cult of wellness, like what advice could you give to that patient to advocate for themselves and to, to get the care they need?
3: Well, I, I would say that, you know, number one, speak up to your doctors. Don't, don't let doctors bully you around. And if you don't feel like you're getting the service that you need, um, speak up or find another provider. Um, you know, you deserve to be respected and cared for uh, and to have your questions answered and to be spoken to with respect and dignity um, by, by your, your, your practitioner. That's number one. Number two, you know, if you're exploring alternatives uh, to what your doctor might, might tell you, I would, just, I would just say bring skepticism to the table. Um, you know, at core, science is about skepticism, right? In, in science, there's a claim that's made, and then we use an experiment to try and knock that claim down. All the time, being skeptical about whether or not that claim is true. And so, if somebody's trying to make a claim to you about how you know this pill or or uh, that cream is going to solve your problem, be skeptical, right? Really dig in and ask why, how, based on what information. Where has this worked before? Show me the evidence. Um, and and that skepticism, if if you bring it to those conversations. Uh, can both save you a lot of money and potentially protect you. And then the third thing I would say is that you know, there are a lot of patient advocacy groups that have come together around advocating for more research or, uh, or more engagement with some of the problems that remain unsolved in our healthcare system. And I'd encourage you to raise your voice that way too um, you know, and be an advocate for that issue because the chances are is that uh, none of us really suffer alone. If you're, if you're uh, facing a problem, there are other people who are like you. And the beautiful thing about the internet when it's most productive is it brings like-minded people together and creates a framework uh, and a forum for you to um, to, to pool your ideas uh, and, to, and to collectivize your voice uh, to, to getting a solution, a real solution to that problem.
2: Do you also think that the way that um, insurance is set up right now is causing it so that doctors can't be as helpful as they could potentially be?
3: Absolutely. One of the problems with the insurance system, right, is that um, you know it's incentivized. The whole system is, has really been corporatized in the way that everything is about the money. And so, you know, the doctor that you see is you're one of, you know, 10 patients they got to see before lunch. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're being measured by these RVUs, which are relative value units um, that they have to produce. And so the amount of time that they have with you is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And so they're trying to focus on the, the quote unquote big problems, but what they think are the big problems may not be the things that you as a patient think are the big problems. And so you got to speak up, um, and you got to take control of that uh, medical encounter to make sure that they're answering the question you want answered.
2: What do you think of these doctors that you pay like a yearly fee, and then they're
3: accessible to you all the time?
1: Oh, I didn't even know about that. Yeah, it's like
2: a, yeah.
3: it's
1: a new pr-
2: like type of practice.
0: Oh,
3: they called it um, direct primary care, and um, you know, when I was running for a governor, we actually uh, we actually signed up all of our staff um, on the campaign uh, to, uh, a direct primary care provider. And you no, know, we, we pay $19 a month and they'd get to go see that doctor whenever they needed to. And they really, really like the experience actually. And I know the doctor, um, has been a big proponent of this model because, uh, it allows him to not have to worry about, you know, do I get 10 minutes or 15 minutes with my patients, but, uh, to be able to take care of those patients as they need to. So it's a cool model. I will say that, you know, it is, um, it's great for folks who can afford it, um, I do think it's a it's a fantastic alternative uh, right now in the system, but we've really got to reform the system so that folks feel like they get that kind of tailored care uh, no matter who they are, because we can do it. I mean, this is the richest, most powerful country in the world. The idea that our health care has to be the most expensive, the least efficient um, and, and one of the least effective dollar for dollar is is ridiculous. Um, we've just got to decide that we want a system that serves us rather than a few corporate CEOs.
1: Yes, and this is why I recommend going to my doctor's office, House of Intuition, on Sunset and Mohawk. Oh, my God. Uh, which... <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. full of creams and um, sage and uh, palo palo santo and crystals oh as far as the eye could see put them well, in you put them on you
2: <laughs> uh, thank you so much would you like to play a game show after telling us everything that's wrong with America
3: <laughs> I, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to play the game show if, if the hypothetical is like will we fix this in America the answer is yes
2: oh I uh, love that see I think there's so much right now especially leading up to the election there's just this pessimism that it's not possible to fix but i think the fact that you actually have the expertise both like as a physician and as having worked in the government to say that it is possible is so important for people to hear
3: well we've got to believe it's possible it's our country right the beautiful thing about democracy um however broken it feels sometimes is that we do have a say we just got to take our say back i uh, have a book coming out actually i just wrote um called healing politics that will be out in. um in March, uh, that um, really talks about what it would look like to fix some of these problems and maybe what's driving some of the fear uh, that, that has us thinking that we can't do any better. And So I hope folks will check it out.
2: I will. <laughs> Thank you. Um- So this is Hypotheticals. It's America's favorite game show. You and Gabby are the contestants. I'm going to give you a couple of hypothetical situations. You can ask me as many questions as you want, and then you'll provide your answer of what you would do in that situation. And then I arbitrarily decide if I agree with you.
3: That Uh, sounds awesome.
2: Yes, it's very fair, just like healthcare.
1: (laughs) I was going to (laughs) say,
0: I was going to
3: make a joke like that.
2: (laughs) Okay, our first game is America's favorite game show, Would You Stay With This Cheater? Ooh. You find out that your spouse of 15 years discovered a serum for eternal life 200 years ago and is actually 231 years old. Oh my god. And has been married 16 times. <gasps> Would you stay with this cheater? Some of her spouses are still alive. Wait, and they're not di- they're divorced? No, they just like disappeared. Because they weren't going to age, so they knew they had to just leave.
1: Oh, my God. Well, it's unethical that they were even starting these relationships to begin with. Well, what are you going to do? You're living forever. you got to have company.
3: Is like, is there a support group for us? <laughs> I feel like there ought to be a support group.
2: Well, no one other than you has discovered what's really happening. Why wouldn't she share this with the world? Because it, she'll become a medical experiment.
1: No, why wouldn't she share her serum with that the world? That
2: was
3: just
1: a little left. Oh my god! <laughs> oh I, my I, god!
3: Like I'm, I'm really fixated on meeting these other spouses, though. Like, can I meet any of them?
1: Yeah, you
2: could. You could ask her if she if she'd set you up with some of them. They think that she just like abandoned them. This woman is horrible. Well, it's yeah. very tough to be the only mortal person on the planet.
3: Imagine imagine watching every one of your spouses just die.
2: Yeah. That's tough. You right? like, that would
3: be really hard. It really would be hard. You know what it, you know what it's like? It's like um you, you guys ever watch X-Men? Yes. With like with Logan.
2: Yeah. Right?
3: He's got I mean at this point he's like super depressed because everybody he ever meets dies. Yeah. So I I would really ask, like, what's that like? Right? Like what's it like watching all the people you love? die and knowing when you start a relationship that you're gonna watch yet again another relationship end.
1: Wow, you are truly a researcher and a man of science and curiosity. (laughs) Wow. What a deep philosophical like look into the human psyche that we're just like, I'm like, no, fuck you. We're broken up. And you're like, well how does it feel?
2: (laughs) Well it ends up that it doesn't matter because she leaves you because she doesn't want to see you die
1: romantic sort of twilight really romantic seems like like kind of like twilight except at the end of twilight he turns her into a vampire don't ruin
2: twilight (laughs) (laughs) okay our next game are you a terrible parent your child has been spending too much money on your credit card so you tell them they have to work to pay you back when they ask how they're supposed to work you tell them to start a business This causes them to get tangled up in a dishonest MLM with heavy Christian undertones. But they make (laughs) enough money to pay
1: you back and buy a new iPhone. Are you a terrible parent? What sort of MLM? MLM. Vitamins. Wait, I'm sorry, wait. So it's vitamins that don't work. Well, it's impossible to say.
3: (laughs) So here's my question. Did I have my teenage daughter with my immortal spouse?
2: No, you're a different person in this scenario.
3: Okay, okay. Because okay. the immortal that'd be, that'd be spouse is infertile. That's uh, also
2: okay. sad. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so so wait, wait, she, so so my spouse didn't become immortal until like after menopause?
2: Um no, the spouse became immortal at 31, but one of the side effects of being immortal is that you're infertile.
1: And also would oh. be kind of sad if you if you just outlived all your kids. Yeah, so that's part of it. Allison, but, this is a real dark tale you've spun. <laughs> well, it's in theme with the episode. <laughs> like
2: real but, sad. But
3: but that's why you start an MLM, right? You're just like, you know what? I, I can't have, like, I can't have, I can't have kids because they die. So you know what? I'm just gonna figure out how to exploit all these people to make a lot of money. <laughs> this is a super
1: villain origin story. <laughs> it
2: really is. <laughs> okay, our final game. Would you lie or tell the truth in this hypothetical? You're a doctor, so just try to imagine. Okay, that.
1: I'll try to imagine being a doctor. I,
3: I will always tell the truth. Okay.
1: That's it. Now, wow. Don't You know, don't decide until you hear
2: a patient comes to see you for an annual checkup and you realize they have a rare terminal illness that will show no symptoms, but cause them to painlessly drop dead in two to eight years. It is impossible to predict the exact time when they ask if they're healthy. Do you lie or tell the truth?
1: Ugh. Oh, my see?
2: God. It's
3: super sad. Like, I'd have to tell. Like, I mean, ethically, you have to tell them. What? I mean
2: what would you want to do? Here's
3: here's what I would do. I'd actually before we ran the test, I would ask would you do you want to know? Right? Cuz if you don't want to know, you just shouldn't get tested.
1: Yeah, cuz isn't it like Huntington's where it's like you just if you just don't I'm take sure. the test, you'll never know?
3: You won't know and, and until you, you have symptoms, the symptoms like, exactly. Yeah. So the, the other question is also like is it is it a communicable disease? Cuz at some point if it's communicable, right? Then you do have an ethical responsibility to to keep them from from passing the disease along. But if it's not communicable and it doesn't, they, they, they can't pass it along, then, you know, I would just ask them, like, think really long and hard before you take this test because, you know, you may not actually want to know. And if you want to know, it's my responsibility to tell you.
2: Oh, that's such a reasonable answer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he is a doctor. He is a legit doctor. You think he's going to say some crazy shit on this podcast when trying to get his medical license taken away? <laughs> Absolutely not.
2: <laughs> okay, you make a good point.
1: Um, so they're, they would just drop dead randomly? Yeah. Uh, I, I would, uh, well, I think I would tell them just so they could live their life to the fullest. Like, you know, ask out that person they want to ask out. Go on their European vacation.
2: Yeah, but ask out that person just to be like, I'm going to be dead in two to eight years? You know what, Allison?
3: <laughs> Here's another question. Like, how old are they?
2: They are 31. Oh, my 31. age. I have so much life to live. I wouldn't tell Man. them. You wouldn't? No. Why? Because what's the point? I guess you uh, could die anytime. Anyone at any time.
3: To I just, super complicate this, I would be like, look, you've gotta find my ex my ex-wife <laughs> who figured out how to live forever and she's gotta have some like extra lick of that serum. And you gotta find that serum. Go. <laughs> Are you
1: sure that you're not a screenwriter? <laughs> Next week, the
2: hypotheticals are just hosted by you. I'm
1: yeah, not even right? a part of it anymore.
3: Absolutely.
1: Oh
2: well. Honestly, I think you you won. Oh oh, he no, did? I
3: yes, no, I think I think I think Gabby won. Uh, because <laughs> no,
1: Gabby never wins. That is sort of the thing. Yeah.
3: <laughs> well, we'll, well, Gabby. I think I think we've won together because we've fully explored the full spectrum of these hypotheticals. So wow. I think if we, when we actually get get hit with this in real life. We'll know what to do. We'll be ready. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people um, find all your information and books and podcasts?
3: Yeah, check out um, America Dissected, which is a podcast we talked about at the top of the hour at um, you know, wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, or, um, or Apple, Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the book you can check out at healingpoliticsbook.com. And then uh, otherwise, just uh, just follow me on um, Instagram or, or Twitter at Abdul El Sayed.:
2: Amazing, thank you so much.
3: Yeah, thank you for having me.
2: <laughs> Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about children and climate change.
1: Oh boy) Back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics! X, 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 X. Baby. Woo! <laughs> wow, I was not expecting a baby, and I appreciate it. You weren't expecting baby. How did you do that? Baby.
2: How do you, you can't do I it. I can't do it. <h issued> nope, not even close. Um, so this week's topic is children and climate change. Oh, boy.
1: <sighs> Look. I mean, this is, I feel like going to be a quick one, which is, um, it is, is it selfish to procreate in the current environment? Yes. End of list. Like, I, I am unclear on if the earth will be around in, in 30 to 50 years. Um, I am unclear about the situation politically at all. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm queer. I don't got the money for IVF. I don't know if I got the money for adoption, might need that money to try to escape what I assume is a, a full fascist takeover. So I don't know. I'm not in a real good headspace right now for this conversation.
2: <laughs> well, I would say adoption is, is um, a cool solution.
1: Oh, that's the only thing that I would be interested in doing.
2: Yeah. I I have always felt that having your own children is selfish because there's so many kids out there that need homes.
1: I know, but then it's like hard to judge because so many people really want it and they really care and it's like devastating to them when they can't do it. And I know. So I totally have seen that and know how hard that is on people and so I I get it. Like I really get that that is like an intensely personal thing. But also for me personally, um, I've always thought maybe I would want to adopt, one, because I have a, a, a genetic mental illness. Um, and two, because there are a lot of kids out there that don't, that don't have um, homes or that don't have parents that want to love them. And I was growing up in Florida. My mom was child custody attorney, so I saw a lot of that firsthand. But also in Florida, while I, when I was growing up, uh, gay adoption was illegal. Mm-hmm. There were, you were not allowed to adopt kids if you were gay. Um, and so I never thought that it was a thing that would be possible for me, uh, but now it is, so why not take advantage of it?
2: I guess one of the questions about this is, does how long you live outweigh whether you should live at all? So let's say, like, Uh, do you know what I mean? Like, so you bring a kid, like, uh, I have a kid tomorrow, and the world doesn't end for 70 years, right? uh, But then, so they only get to live to 70 instead of 100. Does that mean I shouldn't have the kid at all?
1: What's their quality of life? Are they just living in an ashen dystopia (laughs) full of fire and brimstone? Like, what are we talking? I don't know. That's the debate. But I've definitely
2: seen, like, younger kids, like, teenagers make these packs that they're not going to have kids until, like, we get the climate on track, if we even have time to. But I have not seen that at all among people our own age. Oh, I think about that constantly. I think about it all the time, too. But I haven't seen, at least, like, in my friends or, like, in my sister's friends who are only you know five years older than me like they're all procreating they're all having kids they don't seem to be concerned about this
1: I uh I have got definitely used to want kids more so if you'll recall I was like more on the side of wanting to have kids um a few years ago and now I sort of have this more nihilistic view where I'm like mama's got to take care of number one there's only so much time left. And I think I should just enjoy that time with myself and with the people around me. And I don't know that I have the emotional capacity or to, to bring, you know, bring up a new life because I don't have high hopes for the future. So how can I raise something with any sort of optimism? If it doesn't feel fair to the kid, Mm -hmm. How do you raise a kid with optimism and, like, the idea of, like, you know, oh, like, the future will be good when I don't know if the future will be good?
2: But has anyone ever really known? I mean, to raise a kid during the Cold War probably felt somewhat similar. Yeah. Even though, I mean— Obviously, climate change is happening versus the fear of nuclear disaster.
1: Yeah. But and there's something to be said about, like, the continuing of small joys. Mm-hmm. Like, the continuing of, like, you know, while all this stuff is going on, like, living your life and having the continued celebration of small joys such as births and weddings. Like, I I just, um, I don't know. I really don't know because no matter what's going on in the world, the life cycle events have always continued and will always continue. What do you mean? People still get married, have kids, Mm -hmm. like, you know, celebrate um, anniversaries. Like, even, even during horrible times in the world, like, humanity still strives for celebration. That's, like, a very human thing. That's, like, in our nature. Um, So people are still, like, it it seems like you're having a baby in the middle of a burning building, but people are still doing it.
2: For me, it's, like, I think if I had a partner who felt the way I felt, then we'd probably just adopt. But Jake really wants to have biological kids, and it really? feels yeah, and it feels unfair to take that from him. Why does he want it? Because people want that so badly. I don't know. <laughs> I, it's just like I, I've never I've never necessarily felt that way. I've always been never. chill with adoption, but no. like, uh, he's just like you know. I think family is really important to him, and he just like wants to see a little. Jake, which would be so cute, and I know I'm gonna have boys. Ugh. But um, How, why do you know that? Because I don't want them. I don't want them at all, and I know I'm gonna have them, and I'm gonna cry.
1: Well, I got news for you. You can give birth to what you think is a boy, and it doesn't end up being a boy. So you know, ne- the, the the game is <laughs> never over. You know what I mean, Allison? The game's never over. It isn't over till the fat lady sings.
2: For me, it's like, what's more selfish—to have the kid or to not have the kid and deprive my partner of that? So I'm at a real pickle. Well, I would ask
1: why he's so hellbent on that.
2: A lot of people are. You're acting I like that's an unusual no, point of view. It's not
1: unusual. I just don't understand it. The same way that, like, I think I I I don't understand monosexuality as a bisexual. It's like I I don't get it. Like, I and I would love for people to write in and explain why they really want biological children because it's something that's just foreign to me, and I'm not judging it. I just I just can't think of a reason. Can you?
2: I think some people have a fear that they won't love their adopted kid the same way Uh, or that the adopted kid will come with a lot of issues. Guess what? I
1: got news for you. Cheyenne is my parents' biological child, and she came with tons of issues. Believe me, I understand (laughs)
2: that I've made these same arguments, but I'm I'm just explaining people's point of view.
1: Yeah. Um, You you get the kid you get. It's like you get what you get, and you don't get upset. (laughs) Like that's the whole thing.
2: I also think that there's something about, like, seeing a little you grow up is just, like, fun.
1: Yeah. But you can shape and raise the kid to be with your values and characteristics.
2: To a certain extent. Yeah. Temperament is biological. Um,
1: yeah, well, I mean, but it can be you know exas exacerbated or or funneled into different ways or whatever. I mean, I I guess I get it. I get it. Also, like family legacy and like wanting your family to have this sort of whatever like continue and stuff. Um, you know, I I guess like I definitely worry about that because I'm like, well, may may survive the Holocaust for me to be like, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> um, so I don't know, but but I also think that any kid that you get you're gonna start to love it i mean hello i adopted my dog and now i would die for my dog like i know I, you don't have to convince me yeah i understand the not wanting to deprive your partner of that but then i guess it's like well if the apocalypse hits um what do we do about the kids
2: that's my my goal right now is a to is to get him to agree to a one and one
1: Oh, yeah. Wait. Like one kid
2: biological, one kid adopted. Oh,
1: that's interesting. And then never tell them, never tell Jake which one's (laughs) which. Fascinating experiment. You know what I mean? And then he he starts being like, this one looks like me. And you're like, does it?
2: I guess this almost comes back to the hypothetical about like, do you want to know when you're going to die or not? And is it healthier just to like keep living as if you're not all going to die and therefore you keep having kids? Yeah. I I don't know.
1: Oh, Who knows? And then I'm like... I would only have I would only ha- adopt one and then people are like you can't only adopt one only children are weird and then I'm like why do people always say that <laughs> Oh they're not weird they're just like unique and have to have good imaginations
2: Yeah I mean I I only want one kid but then the issue is that then they want to talk to you all the time That is annoying Yeah you want them to have someone else to hang out with
1: Yeah you just get them a dog You're like <laughs> leave me alone Like when you get a cat for your other cat
2: I can't relate to that.
1: I don't know. I I think I was like so on the fence about like wanting kids and now I think like probably not. Um, But also I think if, if I did have a kid, I would adopt. But I would be devastated if it was just like me and that kid holding each other as we all die at the end of the world.
2: Yeah, but if you're adopting the kid, that kid was going to die anyway. At least you're holding it.
1: I love this podcast <laughs> because <laughs> – I just think we really get to the heart of the issues. We're really just, like, talking things out in a way that, like, definitely helps people.
2: Tamika, to come on in and give us your opinion?
1: Tamika, do you regret producing this show? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no. I think that we have really cool, interesting conversations on this show. Uh-huh. So diplomatic. Uh-huh. Honest. Um, You guys are just honest, which is good. Um... Actually, I wanted to, like, touch on a point you were talking about, Allison. Like, I think some people who have this desire to have biological children, like, I don't know for sure, but I think it stems from how you're raised. Mm. When you see this is an important life step to have a child and raise a child, it's like you get in this mindset where you think you might be missing out if Mm -hmm. you don't do that. Um, And so it just, like, feels like this biological urge to see another, like, little you that you get to raise. Maybe. That's my guess.
1: I'm not that great. We don't need another one of me. Conversely, I am so great, I'm enough. Oh, my God.
2: <laughs> that was the most Gabby statement I've ever heard in my life.
0: We don't need another me competing with me. Okay. When you wanted to have kids, why did you want to have kids then and not now?
1: Um, Because my I loved my grandmothers so much and they died. And I wanted to continue on their legacies like I had a lot of pressure not even I didn't want my own characteristics but I like wanted to to carry on like my I guess like my one grandmother who died when I was 14 which uh, really stuck in my craw it's like she she my mom looks exactly like her I look exactly like my mom so to me, it was like I would have, a, a, in my mind, a daughter who looked exactly like this lineage of women. That was important to me for some reason that I think had to do with just, like, nostalgia and idealizing um, my relationship with someone who died when I was 14. If we really want to get into it, Tamika. <laughs> that
2: was a good answer. Yeah. Sense.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, and I also really wanted to adopt because I saw my mom deal with child custody stuff all the time. So more so I really wanted to adopt because I saw a lot of kids that like weren't getting what they needed or wanted, like literally saw them, like met them in my mom's office and stuff. Um, so that was really important to me. And it still remains important. However, I am terrified of uh, climate change in the future. And that is becoming more and more scary to me. So I don't know, maybe I'm now I'm like, maybe I don't want to. Definitely not a biological child. Would, yeah,
0: I'm still with Allison, though. Why, why not adopt a child?
1: I would like to be rich, and I would also like to remain hot, and I feel like you're really tired if you have a kid. Would
2: you have a kid, <laughs> Tamika? A I, biological kid?
0: I don't. I don't know. It's tough, right? I mean, you're never ready to be a parent is what everyone says. Yeah. So uh, I'm open-minded to a lot of things in life, and I just let that be what it's going to be, and I don't stress about it or worry about it or try and plan it out or feel like i'm missing out on doing something if i don't have children mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i don't put that pressure on myself anymore
1: what did uh what did we learn this episode so much oh my god dr al-sayed was so smart and i learned so much about like the um how the cult of wellness is connected to our uh lack of medicare for all which mm-hmm. i had never really put that together in my mind
2: pretty interesting
1: so upsetting, so sad. I know. That like we have to look at these alternatives because we don't we can't trust um that there will be a social safety net for us. It really sucks. Yeah,
2: this has been a bummer of an episode, but we really hope that you (laughs) learned a lot. Thank you to Dr. Abdul el Saeed for being our guest. Just Between Us is hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me,
1: Gabby Dunn. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. He also composed our killer theme music. Our producer is Tamika Weatherspoon. And our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Just Between Us is a production of Stitcher. Do (laughs) baby. What baby? (laughs) Do it like baby. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) baby.
0: Stitcher